About four and a half minutes ago, Stan asked me if I would introduce Peter Craig. I accepted the task with alacrity, and then I had second thoughts and thought, my word, what have I done? Because to introduce Peter Craig is a little bit like introducing St. Bonaventure or Isidore of Seville or, or one of the encyclopedists. Peter knows everything, and he has read everything. He's also written almost everything. And <laughs> those of you who have heard Dr. Peter Craved, who is a professor of philosophy at Boston College in the USA, know that you're in for a great treat. Those of you who have not are indeed in for a great treat, and he has never yet let an audience down. So with that, I give you Peter Craved. In refutation of my friend Tom Howard's words, I produce uh, Exhibit A. <laughs> this was left here in case of breakdown. <laughs> Well, what I have for you is not a prepared speech, but a kind of a guided tour through some choice quotations from some of my favorite authors. I've always thought that teaching is a little bit like the profession of being a tour guide. The tourists endure the endless chatter of the guide until the finger is extended. There you see the Colosseum, and then there's a moment of holy silence. And then the chatter begins again. Well, here are some notes of endless chatter, and here are some delicious quotations. You will have to endure my chatter to get from one to the other. I would like to make six points today about the imagination. This is less a final and finished and philosophical and logically organized essay than some scattered thoughts with a, uh, a last-minute justification in the form of an outline. But I'd like to first of all talk about the importance of the imagination. Secondly, uh, the meaning of the imagination. Third, the Christianization of the imagination. What does Christianity do to the human imagination? And then the last three points are the past, the present, and the future of the imagination. The past history of the imagination in Western thought, the present crisis of the imagination in our contemporary culture, and future prospects for the imagination both in this life and in the life to come. I'd like to begin by talking about the importance of the imagination by quoting one of my favorite writers, Pascal. Pensee number 44. Imagination. It is the dominant faculty in man, master of error and falsehood. All the more deceptive for not being invariably so. For it would be an infallible criterion of truth if it were infallibly that of lies. Since, however, it is often false, it gives no indication of its quality, setting the same mark on true and false alike. Who dispenses reputation? Who makes us respect and revere persons, works, laws, the great? Who but this faculty of the imagination? Would you not say that this magistrate, whose venerable age commands universal respect, is ruled by pure sublime reason and judges things as they really are? without paying heed to the trivial circumstances which offend only the imagination of weaker men? See him go to hear a sermon in a spirit of pious zeal, the soundness of his judgment strengthened by the ardor of his charity, ready to listen with exemplary respect. 
if when the preacher appears, it turns out that nature has given him a hoarse voice and an odd sort of face, that his barber has shaved him badly, and that he happens not to be too clean either, then whatever great truths he may announce, I wager that our senator will not be able to keep a straight face. Put the world's greatest philosopher on a plank that is wider than he. If there is a precipice below, though his reason convince him that he is safe, his imagination will prevail. <laughs> I do not intend to list all the effects of the imagination. It is impossible. Everyone knows that the sight of cats or rats, the crunching of a coal, is enough to unhinge reason. The tone of voice influences the wisest of us more than the content of the speech. How absurd is reason, the sport of every wind. Reason never wholly overcomes imagination, while the contrary is quite common. Our magistrates have shown themselves well aware of this mystery. The red robes, the ermine in which they swaddle themselves like furry cats, the law courts where they sit in judgment, the fleur-de-lis, all this august panoply was very necessary. If physicians did not have long gowns, if learned doctors did not wear square caps and robes four times too large, they would never have deceived the world, <laughs> which finds such an authentic display irresistible. If they possessed true justice, and if physicians possessed the true art of healing, they would not need square caps. Reflect for a moment on the authority of the police without uniforms and you can see the importance of imagination. This passage, incidentally, shows two things, one of which I'll bring up a little bit later, namely that uh, in the Christian tradition, the imagination always has something of a sinister reputation, uh, at least a double reputation. Uh, its power for enlightenment and also its power for deception. Where did that come from and what can we do with that? It's a theme that we'll keep in our back room for a few minutes. I think the reason for Pascal's main point here, that the imagination has tremendous power, probably the greatest power of all our mental faculties, is that unlike the reason, it is not subject to censorship. There's a little old man at the door of the mind called reason, and when a thought knocks at the door of the mind, that little old man gets up and says, well, maybe I'll let the drawbridge down to this thought, and maybe I won't. Let's see. But there is no such thing with the imagination. An image comes in immediately. This is why music is probably the most immediately and powerfully impressive force in the world. This is why Plato, in the Republic, said that the very first piece of education in the ideal state for uh, the supremely wise man, the philosopher king, must be music. And why he said that if his ideal state ever came to be, which by the way he didn't think it could, if it ever did come to be, it would decay through first of all the decay of music. This is also why some Russian scholar with a four or five syllable name which begins with the letter D, which I keep forgetting, maybe someone can remind me, has written a long and learned book proving conclusively that in the last hundred years or so, every single political revolution has been prefaced by a musical revolution. Because political thoughts uh, are, at least to some extent, rational or pseudo-rational and need censorship, but music is not. Well, the imagination is more like music than it is like politics. In our moral life, our responses, our moral responses, are first of all imaginative and secondly rational. 
We do not think, let us see, what, what is it rational to do here? Shall I save this drowning person? Shall I uh, save the, uh, the victim from the mugger? Uh, or shall I not? Ah, I shall. And therefore, you do it. Well, by that time, it's too late. You instinctively and intuitively imagine a situation of the dying leper or the helped leper. You identify with one and you rush in to help the leper without calculating whether leprosy is a communicable disease or not. You either instinctively love or hate, uh, tolerate or do not tolerate uh, such a thing as, as sodomy. It's instinctive or intuitive before it's rational. Reason asks why or why not. But the thing must be there first before you ask why or why not. If the reason were to demand a rational justification for our moral actions, we would eventually be pressed to justify our first premises. And reason can't do that. Reason can, can justify later conclusions by backing up to fundamental principles. But suppose someone asks for a justification of the principle, do good, be good, be a saint, be holy. Why? I don't want to be. There's simply no answer to that question. You come to a point where you meet an unanswerable question. I remember teaching a logic course once backwards in which we started with uh, good and bad arguments and worked our way back to principles. And finally, we worked our way back to the fundamental principle of all logic, namely the law of non-contradiction. That X is not non-X, that a thing is what it is and not its opposite. And a student asked for a justification of the law of non-contradiction. And I trotted out my Aristotle at that point. Uh, uh, unlike Tom, I don't know everything, just a few passages here and there. Uh, and give the impression of knowing everything from knowing a few select passages. And here's the one passage of Aristotle that I can quote from memory. If a man asks for a proof of the law of non-contradiction, this proves only that he is little better than a vegetable. <laughs> Nietzsche is a genius, although a perverted genius, because he asks fundamental questions like, all philosophers before me have said that their philosophy is the truth. They have assumed that we should seek truth. I ask the world's most dangerous question, why truth? Why not rather untruth? Why not indeed the lie? There's simply no answer to that question. There are, there are fundamental, intuitive rather than rational beginnings to all of reason. And in a way that I shall try to define in, in a uh, very few minutes, imagination has something to do with this intellectual intuition. It certainly uh, rules our moral life at the very root and foundation. One's moral instincts uh, are usually uh, all that is left to uh, combat a moral sophist who uh, challenges all moral principles and all moral conventions. There aren't many Socrateses who can answer a sophist by reason. This also shows the preeminent importance of the media, which, like music, immediately uh, places an image in our minds, which usually is not able to be censored by that little old man at the gate, reason. Finally, a definitive proof of the importance of the imagination, if all natural reasons like these are still questionable, uh, is that uh, the world's best teacher, and something more than a teacher, namely our Lord, used it extensively and almost exclusively in his teaching. Uh, parables, images, even when they're not parables, 
A parable is simply a moving image, like a story. Examples are much too numerous and familiar to mention. Uh, I simply challenge any of you to find any one single teaching of Christ which he communicated without an image. Well, point two should have been point one. As a philosopher, I would want a definition of terms before I talk about the terms, but I wanted to motivate you, as if you weren't already motivated, to consider the subject important. So now we proceed to what is logically the first question, the meaning of the word imagination, the definition of the word. I think there are three distinct meanings of the word imagination, both in the history of Western thought and in our own commonsensical vocabulary. Uh, meaning number one is simply the inner sense or the power to call up interior sensations, images of external physical things, even when those things are not externally present to the outer senses. You see me here now with your senses. You close your eyes and remember what I look like and that's your imagination. This kind of imagination, the ability to call up images within, is shared with higher animals like dogs and distinguishes them from lower animals like scorpions, slugs, and rock stars. <laughs> imagination in this sense is to be distinguished from the power of immediate sense perception below it and from the power of abstract conception above it. This power of abstract conception raises humans above the level of the animals. So let us call the first meaning of imagination sensory imagination or inner sensing. A second meaning of imagination on the basis of this power of abstract intellectual conception which raises us above the animals and raises us above the level of uh, sensory imagination, we also have a second imaginative power which, unlike the first, is shared by no animal. This is the power to imagine things that we have never seen, even things that have never existed. Let us call this the creative imagination. A bird of a certain species will always build its nest in exactly the same way. It will never invent new architectural styles. Here is empirical proof that there is a difference in kind and not just in degree between man and the animals. Tolkien uh, makes a very illuminating comment about uh, this creative imagination in his essay uh, on fairy stories, which I think is the wisest thing any human being in the entire history of the world has ever written on the subject. He sees the invention of the adjective as the origin of both fantasy and technology. He says, how powerful was the invention of the adjective. No spell or incantation is more potent. The mind that thought of light, heavy, gray, yellow, still, swift, in other words, abstracted adjectives from their nouns, also conceived of magic that would make heavy things light and able to fly, or turn gray lead into yellow gold and the still rock into a swift water, and thus do fantasy. If it could do one, it could do the other. It inevitably did both. When we can take green from grass, blue from heaven, and red from blood in our minds, we already have a magician's power 
upon one plane, and the desire to wield that power in the world external to our minds awakes. So fantasy and technology arise, if not historically together, uh, psychologically together, through this power of abstraction. Let me give an example. When my son was about three, he wanted to make me a birthday present, and he was kind of clumsy, and he likes to work with Plato, not the philosopher, the modeling clay. Uh, and he was, he was trying to make Pluto out of Plato. He thought that was funny. He liked Mickey Mouse's dog. But he couldn't make a dog. All he could make was a lump. And uh, I was off teaching, and my wife was at home observing him, uh, and he saw this lump, and she said something like, it looks like doo-doo. And he said, wonderful, I'll give Daddy doo-doo, but it's purple. Because he, he mixed the blue and the, the red Play-Doh and made purple doo-doo. Uh, so he said, I made purple doo-doo. Ran around the backyard, uh, so happy, uh, liturgically chanting for about five minutes, I made purple doo-doo, I made purple doo-doo. Uh, our neighbor, who was a nurse, called up, is there some problem uh, medically with your son? <laughs> still have this lump of purple doo-doo, his first birthday present, uh, which shows exactly the, the stage in history that uh, primitive man is at when Tolkien describes him. Here, doo-doo is not usually purple. Here's purple flower, a concrete thing, purple and flower together. Here is brown doo-doo, a concrete thing, uh, depending on how constipated you are, I suppose. Concrete. Uh, brown and the stuff together. Now, when you take the purple away from the flower, you've abstracted the power of abstract mental conception. Having done that, you can then recombine the purple with the doo-doo and make purple doo-doo in your mind. And then you can also do it technologically in the world. So my little three-year-old was redoing uh, the whole of human history in, in five minutes there. Isn't it interesting, though, that the origin of this fascinating concrete power of creative imagination, which everyone is interested in, is, uh, in turn, this abstract, purely rational, conceptual power of abstracting an adjective from a noun, which nobody except philosophers is interested in. But you can't do the one without the other. And since we're not interested in the one thing, we keep it in the unconscious and are not aware of it. There is a third meaning of imagination, a still higher meaning. Uh, perhaps to use the word imagination for this third meaning is somewhat of a loose and improper use of the word, but uh, the thing itself is so important that it needs some sort of word, and it's often the word imagination in our common parlance, so let's use it. Imagination in this highest sense is intuitive understanding as opposed to rational understanding. It's an intellectual power, but it's instinctive and immediate. Medieval philosophers called it intellectus as distinct from ratio. Plato called it episteme as distinct from dianoia, if you speak either Greek or Latin. Uh, let's call it contemplative imagination as distinct from both the sensory imagination and the creative imagination. Man is distinguished from the animals by at least three mental powers two of which are often called imagination. The first distinctly human power is the creative imagination, my meaning number two. The second distinctively human power is the power of reasoning. The third distinctively human power is the contemplative imagination, the power to hold before the mind a meaning, to understand it, that is, to stand under it. 
for instance, a, a reader of a difficult philosopher like Hegel or Heidegger may often be said to have or not to have an imaginative sympathy with these difficult and abstract ideas. C.S. Lewis, I think, is thinking of this third meaning of imagination when he says in the quotation that you've all read right here in our brochure that meaning is the antecedent condition of both truth and falsehood whose antithesis, the antithesis of meaning that is, is not error but nonsense. I am a rationalist. For me, reason is the natural organ of truth. But imagination is the organ of meaning. Imagination, producing new metaphors or revivifying old, is not the cause of truth, but its condition. An idea is either true or false, but both true ideas and false ideas must be meaningful. And it's imagination that makes them meaningful first, before reason makes them either true or false. Obviously, these two things, meaning and truth, are closely related, in fact, even interdependent, for truth without meaning is meaningless truth, and meaning without truth is not true meaning. But they are nevertheless distinct. I think Lewis also has this contemplative imagination in mind in the passage in The Four Loves about the love of nature, when he says that our appreciation of nature gives meaning and content to our appreciation of God. For instance, the beauty and majesty of a storm is a rightful image of the beauty and majesty of God. And if you had never seen a storm, you would know God less well. Animals only sense the storm. They don't sense its beauty or its majesty. These are objects of contemplative imagination, not of sensory imagination. Jacques Maritain defines this contemplative imagination as follows. What we receive, though it may be partially or deficiently, is an intellectual gift, a participation in the poetic knowledge and poetic intuition through which the poet has pierced a certain unique mystery in the mystery of the world. Poetic intuition is knowledge through emotion. We receive a participation in the poet's emotion. I mean in his emotion as causing to see. We receive a transient knowing, a vision, a fleeting revelation. And thus it is that it can be said, as C.E.M. Jode puts it, in the appreciation of music and pictures, we get a momentary and fleeting glimpse of the nature of that reality to a full knowledge of which the movement of life is progressing. For that moment, and so long as the glimpse persists, we realize in anticipation and almost, as it were, illicitly, the nature of the end. We are, if we may put it so, for a moment, there. And since we are for a moment there, we experience, while the moment lasts, that sense of liberation from the urge and drive of life, which is one of the characteristics of aesthetic experience. This is the contemplative imagination. Of the three meanings, the sensory imagination, the creative imagination, and the contemplative imagination, the second, the creative imagination, is the one that most of us mean most of the time when we use the words. What I would like to do is to concentrate on that, with also some important references to the third one, and leave the first meaning aside of interest mainly to historians, philosophers, and psychologists. Art certainly proceeds from the creative imagination and is consummated in the contemplative imagination.
A third question that I'd like to address is what does Christianity add to our natural imaginative life? This is a case in point or a subdivision of a broader question, namely the relation between the supernatural and the natural, or between grace and nature. Throughout Christian history, there have been three tendencies, three traditions in answering this question, which, if you insist on labels, all of which are almost always inaccurate, could be called the fundamentalist, the liberal, and the orthodox. Uh, the fundamentalist answer t tends to be uh, that since grace is greater than nature, which is true, uh, and since grace uses nature uh, as a servant or an instrument, which is true, uh, therefore the tendency is always to uh, exalt grace at the expense of nature, uh, a kind of dualism between grace and nature. In theology, this often manifests itself as, as docetism. Uh, an emphasis on the divinity of Christ to the exclusion of his humanity, sometimes uh, as deism, an emphasis on the transcendence of God uh, and an ignoring of the imminence of God, and in terms of scripture, just as in terms of Christ, both of which are called the word of God, to emphasize the divine inspiration and to de-emphasize the human sources. At the opposite extreme, the liberal or modernist mentality also uh, separates grace and nature, uh, this time to the detriment of grace rather than of nature. Instead of nature serving grace, grace serves nature. Grace imitates nature. Ultimately, grace disappears before nature. Uh, in theology, this manifests itself as Arianism, the denial of the divinity of Christ. In uh, uh, Theology also has pantheism, an emphasis on the divine presence to the exclusion of the divine transcendence, uh, and the notion of scripture as one of many human books rather than divinely inspired. For nearly 2,000 years, orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, has always felt its way between this Scylla and Charybdis and insisted that the relation between grace and nature is like the relationship of a good marriage. Uh, grace marries nature, redeems nature. Uh, grace does to nature what charity does to natural love and what faith does to reason. Grace perfects nature. Grace transforms nature, fulfills nature. Uh, examples, faith and reason being married in medieval philosophy, faith and science being married in uh, modern Christian thought, uh, faith and experience in a Christian psychology, faith and the will in the saints, charity uses natural affections, and faith and the imagination in the Christian artist. It's intriguing that most errors come in apparently opposite extremes, but you can always or almost always find a common agreement in the two opposite extremes. And here, the two opposite extremes of the fundamentalist and the modernist tendency is always to separate and oppose grace and nature. The orthodox Christian imagination then will somehow marry the two. And as you know, uh, certainly if you're married, marriage is a profound transformation. Uh, for a bachelor to become a married man is something more than for a shoeless man to have shoes on. It, uh, it's one of these all-pervasive principles which transforms all of life. Christianity must do the same to the imagination. Uh, but how? Is there a formula? Exactly how is this to be done? 
I don't know anybody who's got a formula any more than I know anybody who's got a formula for what is the Christian family in the 20th century. There have been various answers to these questions in history. No one seems to think it's possible or even desirable to simply repeat the old details to go back to Victorian tintypes uh, of either, let's say, the Christian family or the Christian imagination, or for that matter, the, the Christian philosophy of, let's say, the 13th century. Thus, we must use the creative imagination to invent and develop new forms, new metaphors of the same fundamental principle. But we have to go back to our sources, which is fundamentally the Bible. So let's look at imagination in the Bible for a moment to find out what grace does to the natural imagination at its source. What sort of imagery do we find in the Bible? Let's start with heaven. How does the Bible describe heaven? As a story, as a life, as something like the rest of the Bible, which is less an abstract formula than uh, an event or a series of events. Unlike most of the other great religious books of the world, uh, the Bible tells a story. Rather than giving you uh, abstract eternal truths or meditation exercises or something of that sort. And the same is true of, of its picture of our ultimate destiny. Even in the first of my three senses of the imagination, the Bible is a work of the imagination. Its eternal truths are mediated by visible events. The most important story, the story of the Gospels, is told by eyewitnesses who start with their sensory imagination. The book of Revelation. Uh, probably the most imaginative book in the Bible, is just a, a, a fireworks display of images. The, the chief reason it's so difficult to interpret is not that it's so poor, but that it's, that it's so rich. And most importantly of all, Jesus himself, both the story of him and stories by him are full of the imagination. The most important uh, agent or subject of the imagination in the Bible, of course, is God himself. The Incarnation shows God's imagination. Uh, the Creation shows God's imagination. Would you have invented all this stuff? The incredible profusion of imagination. What are it, 200,000 species of bugs? In providentially guiding human history and allowing uh, evil into our lives, do you realize that if it hadn't been for one cheap Egyptian tailor, none of us would have hope of heaven? The one who wove Joseph's mantle, which separated in the hands of Potiphar's wife so that she had evidence against him and got him thrown into jail, where he interpreted the butler and the baker's dreams, got into Pharaoh's good favor. You know the rest of the story. Jews are alive today, and Christ has had a place to come to only because of one cheap Egyptian tailor. <laughs> What a story. God tells a thousand Cleopatra's nose stories. Pa Pascal says somewhere, if Cleopatra's nose had been a quarter of an inch longer, the whole history of the world would have been fundamentally changed. Imagine the imagination of God in outwitting the devil through Judas Iscariot. 
I'm going to write a science fiction story someday about a, a well-intentioned idealist who discovers time travel, wants to go back and undo some of the great mistakes of history, so puts his soul into the body of Judas Iscariot to try to undo that terrible accident of the crucifixion, uh, but miscalculates by a year or so and has to be with Jesus for about a year and listen to his teachings and finally realizes who Jesus is and what he's all about. So now he doesn't want to betray him, but realizes that he has to because somebody has to. Imagine, imagine how God outwitted the devil on Calvary. Suppose you're the devil. This is almost blasphemous and very dangerous, but I think it's, it's worth the, uh, the risk. Imagine, you hate God, you want to kill him, you can't. He's impervious, but he has this ridiculous weakness called love. He loves these miserable little flesh-covered, two-footed, furry, hobbit-like animals he calls human beings. Uh, and you've tried to persuade him that the whole idea of creating them was a, a mistake, but you failed. So now you're going to convince him that this... Achilles' heel of his, namely love, uh, is going to lead to his downfall. So all you do is, is sneak into Eden, and God is so forced that he doesn't even put up a sign saying no snakes in the grass. And it, it succeeds, and all of human history goes downhill, from Cain's murder of Abel to Auschwitz. It's one horrible story, uh, and you've won. And then, worst of all, uh, God is still so obsessed with this love thing that he keeps sending prophets, and all you do is get them assassinated because you control the media at all times uh, and then worst of all he comes down himself steps right into your trap plays by your rules and you say well you're coming into my world uh, here are a couple of my chief agents Judas and Pontius Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and the rest the trap springs shut and there he is on the cross crying out my God my God why hast thou forsaken me you probably remember that unforgettable passage from Paralandra, where the devil, who is now inhabiting the body of Weston, uh, cries those words. Not remembering. He's reenacting. Through all eternity, you, the devil, cherish, relish, live on and love those words. Those are your words of utter success. You have defeated God. You have split the eternal trinity. You have introduced doubt into divinity. You have turned God for a moment into an atheist. And this, this moment of your supreme triumph, is precisely the trick that God, in his incredible imagination, has used to defeat you. This worst thing that has ever happened, deicide, is the thing Christians celebrate as Good Friday. You see, it's judo. God is the 98-pound weakling, and the devil is a 300-pound bully, and God extends his hand in welcome and says, Welcome, friend, and boom, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. What an imagination. I remember reading a book by a Jewish atheist, Arthur Katz, called Ben Israel, in which he tells the story of his conversion. He was on a tramp steamer contemplating suicide. He had been a Marxist, an atheist. He had tried everything. He had rejected his, his Judaism. Uh, and he read the New Testament, which he had been previously told not to read. And he fell in love with the figure of Jesus. Didn't believe in him, but just loved him in a human way. And when he came to John 8, the story of uh, the woman taken in adultery and the Pharisees using her to trap Jesus, he said, I knew it, they got him. Nobody can ever get out of that. If he says, yes, stone her, he's stuck. If he says, no, don't stone her, he's stuck. Either the church or the state is going to get him. And if he says nothing, then he's a wimp. <laughs> he closed the book, put it in his pocket, contemplated jumping off the ship, decided to look at the book again, read the next verse. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the sand. He said, I knew it. He's got no answer. Nobody could possibly have an answer to that one. 
put the book in his pocket again. His curiosity overcame him. He opened the book, read the next verse. Let him who was without sin cast the first stone. He said, that's God. <laughs> Very similar to the old story of Solomon and the two women with the one live baby. Uh, the, the key verse in that story is after Solomon makes his decision, uh, cut up the baby in two, give half to each woman, and that reveals who the real woman is, uh, real mother is, because she says, no, give the baby to her, but don't kill it. Ah, that's the mother. All Israel realized that the king had a divine gift. Only by divine inspiration do we have that kind of imagination. One of the most intriguing arguments for the existence of God that I have ever seen is based on this principle of the divine creative imagination. It's from Soren Kierkegaard. It's the last paragraph of the first chapter of Philosophical Fragments. What he has done in this chapter is pretend to be Socrates and ask the question, is there any alternative possibility to this Socratic picture of man being his own center and finding salvation through reason? Well, if there were an alternative possibility, it would have to be this, that, and the other thing, and this, that, and the other thing turn out to be all the fundamental categories of Christianity. Though it'll be the divine transcendence, salvation from without, the new birth, etc. And now he concludes, is the hypothesis here expounded thinkable? A very good question. We Christians who have been brought up in this sort of thing don't usually realize the near unthinkableness of Christianity, the astonishingness of it. We're all too sympathetic with people who say, oh yes, that old tired thing, I'm sick of that. And much too sympathetic to, uh, and excuse me, not sympathetic enough to someone who says, this is the craziest fairy tale I ever heard. Who could possibly believe it? I think an atheist who says, who could possibly believe this sort of ridiculous nonsense is a lot closer to understanding the meaning of the faith than someone who says, oh yes, of course, those old platitudes. So Kierkegaard asked the question, is the hypothesis here expounded thinkable? Is it meaningful? Remember, imagination is the organ of meaning, and that's a precondition for both truth and falsity. He's not asking, is it true? He's asking, is it thinkable? Is it meaningful? Before we reply, let us ask ourselves, from whom we may expect an answer to our question? The thing of being born, is it thinkable? Certainly, why not? But for whom is it thinkable? For one who has been born? Or for one who has never been born? The latter hypothesis is an absurdity which would never have entered anyone's head. When one who has experienced birth thinks of himself as born, he conceives the transition from non-being to being. The same principle must also hold in the case of the new birth. In other words, here is a thought that has entered into the mind of man, being born again, receiving supernatural life. How could that thought have entered into the mind of man if it had not come from reality? Who then may be expected to think the new birth? Surely the man who has himself been born anew. Since it would be absurd to imagine that one not so born should think it. There you have my project. Where did this project come from? Who invented it? Well, I am going to be so polite as to assume that you, my reader, are the author of this project. 
greater politeness than this, you can scarcely ask. <laughs> or if you deny this, will you also deny that someone is the author, that is to say, some human being? In that case, I am as near to being the author as any other human being. So your anger is not vented upon me because I appropriated something that belongs to another human being, but because I appropriated something of which no human being is the rightful owner. Is it not strange that there should be an idea in existence in relation to which everyone who knows it knows also that he has not invented it? This passed me by, not stopping or capable of being stopped, even if we approached all men in turn. This strange fact deeply impresses me and casts over me a spell, for it seems to constitute a test of the hypothesis and proves its truth. It would certainly be absurd to expect of a man that he should of his own accord discover that he did not exist. But this is precisely the transition of the new birth from non-existence to existence. Be then angry with me and with whoever else pretends to be the author of this thought. But that is no reason why you should be angry with the thought itself. You have to read that and meditate on it three or four times before it sinks in. And every time I read it, it becomes more and more impressive. At first it seemed nonsensical. And the second time, there's something to it. And the third time, well, maybe I should read it three times now so it sinks in, but we don't have the time. <laughs> but it's philosophical fragments, first chapter. And then the second chapter, he does the same thing in the form of a fairy tale. Uh, I suspect that Kierkegaard would be very sympathetic with Lewis's and Chesterton's notion that myth is uh, unfocused gospel or confused gospel. And thus fairy tale which is very similar to myth, uh, has very strong theological and proto-evangelical uh, truths in it. Anyway, he uh, tells Christianity in the form of a fairy tale of the king and the humble maiden. And then at the end, we had the same story, uh, the same argument, rather. Oh, I, I can't resist the temptation. Such will be our poet's picture. Now, if someone were to say, this poem of yours about the king wooing the, uh, the humble maiden... Uh, God, of course, wooing the human soul, is the most wretched piece of plagiarism ever perpetrated, for it is neither more nor less than what every child knows. I say, but every poet who steals, steals from some other poet. If I were now to be so polite as to, to ascribe the authorship to you who now condemn me, you would perhaps again be angry. Is there then no poet, although there is a poem? This would surely be strange, as strange as flute playing without a flute player. Or is this poem perhaps like a proverb for which no author can be assigned because it is as if it owed its existence to humanity at large, which was perhaps the reason you called my theft the most wretched, because I did not steal from any individual man but robbed the human race. And arrogantly, although I am only an individual man, I, even a wretched thief, pretended to be mankind. If this is the case, and I went all, almost to all men in turn, and all knew the poem, but each one also knew that he was not the author of it, can I then conclude mankind must be the author? Would this not be a strange conclusion? For if mankind were the author of the poem, this would have to be expressed by considering every individual equally close to authorship. So then perhaps it is no poem, or at any rate, not one for which any human being is responsible. Now I understand you, dear friend, and recognize the justice of your resentment. But then is my soul filled with new wonder, even more of the spirit of worship. For it would surely have been strange had this poem been a human production. It is not impossible that it might occur to man to imagine himself the equal of God. We are fools, after all. Or to imagine God the equal of man. But not to imagine that God would make himself into the likeness of man 
For if God gave no sign, how could it enter into the mind of man that the blessed God should seem to need him? This would be a most stupid thought. Rather, so stupid a thought could never have entered into the human mind. Although when God has seen fit to entrust man with the thought, man exclaims in worship, this thought did not arise in my own heart, and finds it a most miraculous thought. The best question any student ever asked me was after teaching Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov and focusing on the character of Alyosha, uh, a little naive, innocent freshman girl came up afterwards and, and said, you, you've, you've answered a lot of questions, very mysterious questions, through Dostoevsky. Can you answer one more? Dostoevsky shows this incredible love of God that penetrates through the volcanic darkness and evil of the Karamazov nature. Tell me, why does God love us so much? So, being a fool, I tried to be clever and said, ask me again in a year. I don't know now. Maybe I'll know then. One year later, to the day and the hour, she appeared. Do you know today? That's the great mystery. Who could imagine it? Let's go back to Christ as the primary imaginer and the most imaginative of teachers and ask, what's behind his use of images? We're still on this third subject, and I've got five minutes left to do four more points, but we'll rush. Why did Christ use so many parables and images? Why did he constantly say one thing was like another? The kingdom of heaven is like a net, like a pearl, like new wine. Why do Chesterton and Lewis stand out as the two most interesting and attractive and effective Christian apologists of the 20th century? Partly because they share the same habit of always finding analogies in the visible for the invisible. Now, what's behind this mental habit of analogy, imagining one thing as another? It is imagination. It's neither mere sensation nor mere reason. What's behind it, especially in Christ's own teaching, is seeing the world as its creator sees it as a totally meaningful, designed, planned, intelligent work of art, as a great chain of being, a cosmic hierarchy, a universe, unity in diversity, diversity in unity, a vision the modern mind has lost or deliberately thrown away to the tragic detriment of the imagination. For one thing can be said to be like another only in a world unified by a single creative mind. You can compare one thing to another thing only against the background of some common, ultimate, unifying standard or frame of reference or story. <clears throat> the divine, artistic, creative imagination is that frame of reference. Drop that background and you get the modern universe. Where, as G.E. Moore put it, each thing is only itself and not anything else. I think you can see the difference very graphically if you just compare uh, the title of the Faulkner novel, The Sound of the Fury, with its source. Its source, of course, is the famous speech in Macbeth, where Macbeth, going morally insane, declares life full of sound and fury signifying nothing. In Shakespeare, this insanity is framed by a meaningful and moral universe thus is judged as insanity. Thus Macbeth is, as everyone knows, a crime and punishment story. What Faulkner does is remove the frame and look at the world through the eyes of not someone like Shakespeare, but someone like Macbeth. That is, he pictures a world which really is 
full of sound and fury signifying nothing. No frame. Thus you get the destruction of form, the destruction of analogy, the destruction of, of meaning, of relationship, of destruction of a universe. Lewis, after whom C.S. Lewis College will be named, is, I think, a fitting model of the Christian imagination in sense number two, especially, the creative imagination. He represents not the fundamentalistic or the modernistic extremes. He doesn't have a cheap nature as the fundamentalist ex extreme tends to, or cheap grace as the modernist extreme tends to, but a transformationist and integralist, if you like these ist words, vision of the transformation of nature by grace because he lives in this universe of divine art. Examples are too numerous to mention, long and short. Paralandra, till we have faces, Images in mere Christianity, let me just go through three sentences, one on page 37. This is why Lewis, I think, is powerful even in his apologetics. It's mainly that what you remember of a book like Mere Christianity is a couple of uh, unforgettable images, pictures which are literally worth a thousand words. Theologians chatter their thousand words, Lewis gives you a picture. You find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as, notice the comparison, you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at the house that he has built. The universe is at war. This world is enemy-occupied territory. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. <laughs> Makes you uh, excited about going to church, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's true. A man who changed from having bios, natural life, to having zoe, supernatural life, this is a commentary on, on John 3.3. 3. What does it mean to say you must be born again? Would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. In other words, Pinocchio. We were all Pinocchio. Almost all the fairy tales are profoundly theological. Beauty and the Beast, We're the Beast, uh, Cinderella, uh, the Frog Prince, We're the Frog, God's going around the world kissing frogs. That is precisely what Christianity is all about. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there is a rumor going around the shop that we are someday going to come to life. One more quotation. I can't resist quoting Lewis. It's an obsession. From the weight of glory best sermon ever preached. When I become Pope, my first decree will be that this sermon will be preached once a year in every pulpit. <laughs> well, I can't find it, but the, uh, the quotation is uh, when he's talking about this desire to get in to the beauty that we only see externally and feel alienated from. Uh, he says, all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that someday we will get in. 
what a, what a wonderful metaphor. Just tossed off uh, as a, uh, a little extra. But our main model and example for the Christian imagination is, of course, Christ, who is the model for everything human, therefore for the imagination, too. The question is, though, is he not too high a model? Can we do the sort of thing he did? He says so. He says, you shall do the works that I do greater than these even shall you do. What was he talking about? Only healing miracles? One of his miracles that I mentioned before was his use of imagination. Why limit his prophecy to uh, mere miracles of healing bodies? Why not healing imaginations too? Baptizing imaginations. Can we do the sort of thing he did in John 8 with the, with the Pharisees or Matthew 22, 23, these ways of brilliantly escaping the, the Pharisees or Matthew 11 with the Sadducees? You can't pin him down. He's like the Father. He's I am, not you are. He's not an object. You can't, you can't put him in a box. Can we do that sort of thing? We aren't God. Our name is not Jehovah. Ah, but we are images of God. Our name is I. Just as God's name is I am, so each one of us can say I am. So we too can be original. But as every great Christian writer has seen and said, the secret of originality is the same as Christ's. No one in history was ever more original. No one in history was ever less original. Christ said, I come not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. Not my own teaching, but my teaching comes from him. And yet no one was ever more original than he. The last page of mere Christianity, Lewis explained this principle. Until you have given up your whole self to him, you will not have a real self. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been. How gloriously different are the saints. What's the difference between Adolf Hitler and Attila the Hun? A mustache and a German accent. <laughs> What's the difference between Thomas Aquinas and Thomas More? Or Teresa of Avila and Teresa of Lisieux? All the difference in the world. They're all characters. The very first step is to try to forget about yourself altogether. Your real new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for everyday matters. And here's the analogy again, the image. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring twopence how often it has been told before, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. That's why he's so original. He doesn't try to be. That's why modern philosophy is so tediously dull and unoriginal, because it strives so self-consciously to be original. All right, uh, should I give you a brief tour of the history of imagination? It was part of your advertisement, but I think I've taken up my time. Or do I have... Shoot. Go. Shoot. Go for it. Oh, well, all right. A really Cook's tour. Seven stages of the past history of the imagination with very, very broad strokes. The beginning. Let's just refer back to Tolkien's quotation about the origin of the imagination in the separation of adjectives from nouns or the power of human abstraction. This lies back in 
the Garden of Eden or prehistory, uh, which is undateable. Second stage, the production of myth, the first and most uh, long-lasting product of the human imagination. Uh, myth, as opposed to reason, uh, is not something that you know and control. It is the bubbling up process. Nietzsche would call it Dionysian rather than Apollonian. We still do it. Lewis does it in the well-known little explanation of how he wrote the Narnia stories. It all began with a picture. The editor has asked me to tell you how I came to write The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One thing I am sure of, all my Narnia books and my three science fiction books began with seeing pictures in my head. At first, they were not a story, just pictures. The lion all began with a picture of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood. The picture had been in my mind since I was about 16. Then one day, when I was about 40, I said to myself, let's try to make a story about it. At first, I had very little idea how the story would go. Then suddenly, Aslan came bounding into it. I don't know where the lion came from or why he came, but once he was there, he pulled the whole story together. So you see that in a sense, I know very little about how the story was born. That is, I don't know where the pictures came from. And I don't believe anyone knows exactly how he makes things up. Making up is a very mysterious thing. When you have an idea, could you tell anyone exactly how you thought of it? In the mysterious silence of the night, the creative word leaped down from heaven. That happens in us. What happened in the Big Bang 18 billion years ago keeps happening on a mental level in our mind. Ideas just come. At a certain time in history, though, roughly datable to the time of Socrates, something else looked down on these bubbling up ideas, which had manifested themselves as stories, myths, and evaluated them, criticized them. Uh, it's as if a, uh, a volcano suddenly erupted, and a new kind of lava, namely reason, asking the question, why? Is it true? Prove it. This emerged at a certain time in history. Socrates is the first person who consistently pursued this new sort of thing. And his great disciple Plato had an enormously difficult time trying to reconcile the old way of thinking, mythos, sacred storytelling, with the new way of thinking, logos, logical reasoning. And he ended up by a beautiful compromise. Uh, when his reasoning went as far as it could and it could go no further, he took refuge in myth. Though, when he met Socrates and became a convert to the life of philosophy, he burned all his poetry, all his dramas, which he had previously thought to, uh, to give to the Athenian people uh, in, in competition. He might have been another Sophocles. Uh, but he did not burn the poetry within him. So most of the most memorable passages in Plato are images. The cave in the Republic, the myth of Ur, uh, the picture of the, uh, the charioteer and the black and white horses and the Phaedrus. Uh, the pictures, he realized, are worth more than thousands of words. But there is never a, a complete harmony and synthesis of uh, the mythic imagination and philosophical reason in Plato. In fact, in the Republic, uh, one of them simply triumphs over the other, and the uh, creative artists are banished from the ideal state. Only allegorical moralists are allowed. A fourth stage, the Christian imagination, has 
not yet, I think, fully succeeded in coming to terms with this platonic legacy, this double legacy. You can see this especially in Augustine, who more than any one individual created the medieval Christian mind. Take the Confessions, the book that everyone knew and read and loved for a thousand years, has two different and, I think, unreconcilable aspects of the imagination. On the one hand, there's uh, Augustine, the rhetorician. The confession is absolutely chock full of images. It sings. It's, it's, it's not prose, it's poetry. On the other hand, there's Augustine, the moralist, who's terribly suspicious of the imagination, especially in the form of the theater which not simply because the, the content of the plays produced in late and decadent Rome was immoral, but the, the very medium itself, he thinks, is, is suspicious because it induces us to live in sympathy for the unreal rather than uh, in uh, rational knowledge of the real. Throughout Christian history, there has always been this unfortunate split between the true and the good on the one hand, what Nietzsche calls the uh, Apollonian, after Apollo, the god of the sun and enlightenment, and the Dionysian on the other hand, which is somehow associated with the theater. Theater sorts, well, you know, you know what sorts of people theater people are. They always have this seedy reputation, even in Shakespeare's time, certainly in Augustine's time, certainly in our time. Why is that so? The Greeks had a word, tokalon, the noble, the good and beautiful, which meant the simultaneously beautiful and good. Why in Athens, even architecturally, was the poet at the center of moral community life? Why was the successful poet rewarded by free room and board in the town hall for the rest of his life? Whereas the poet or the artist today, we expect to live in a cold water East Greenwich Village flat with rats and go insane. Yeah, I thought you'd have an answer to that somewhere. In the high Middle Ages, this double tradition is continued. In practice, a marvelous flowering of the imagination. Obviously, an age that produced Gothic architecture and uh, the high mass and the marvelous architectonic structure of the Summa Theologica is not an age deficient in the imagination. And yet the theory is deficient. The practice is exuberant. The theory is, on the one hand, deficient, and on the other hand, suspicious. Part of the reason, I think, is that the medieval mind is the natural, naive, childlike mind. A child is spontaneous, not self-conscious, and does not think about what he or she is doing. C.S. Lewis is a child. He doesn't reflect a lot on method. He doesn't give you a, a how-to. He just does it. So the Middle Ages did it but they didn't think about how to do it. We in modernity are just the opposite. We're all methodology, all second order questions. We don't do it, we tell other people how to do it. We don't teach, we teach about teaching. Renaissance, as everyone knows, next stage. Uh, this is essentially a refocusing of interest in this world. In art, in science, uh, even in terms of the ideal. There's a, a significant little feature about the Renaissance that people don't realize. It originated, it invented a new genre, science fiction, especially the utopia. St. Thomas More's Utopia, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, Campanella's The City of the Sun, many such works about finding a, a kind of heaven on earth. That's a new form of imagination, a new sensibility. Uh, not a new theory, not a new theology, not even a new philosophy, but a new sensibility to nature. 
the contrast between the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, I think, is often overdone. The Middle Ages also was humanistic. In medieval consciousness, man is great. Man is made in the image of God. Ontologically great, although morally dangerous. A typically modern mind sees man as ontologically miserable, but morally innocent. George Bernard Shaw said that the ancients were flattered to be called the bastard offspring of the gods. We are humbled to be called the legitimate offspring of the ape. <laughs> are we made in the image of King God or King Kong? <laughs> but we have somehow in the Renaissance a new sensibility emerging. In Petrarch, for example, we have the first person in the history of the world who loves mountains. Mountains in ancient times are always regarded as formidable threats, as images of terror. In Petrarch, they're images of beauty. You can we'll go on a walking tour of mountains. Something that is not yet fully understood is emerging here. It's one of those changes like, like the use of the word ennui in the 17th century. No ancient language has a word for boredom. Apparently, it didn't exist until the 17th century late 17th, early 18th century. Uh, we don't know much about our intellectual history. All we know is books, but what goes on back here, somebody has to write that. Finally, modernity. Essentially, the split, the divorce, after the medieval marriage between faith and reason, grace and nature, heaven and earth, uh, we have the great divorce. In philosophy, rationalism versus empiricism, reason divorces itself into two categories. In art, classicism versus romanticism. Uh, the right brain and the left brain seem to uh, get a, a dual personality. And the result in the imagination is, on the one hand, uh, an unimaginative rationalism, and on the other hand, a, a jungle of irrational romantic sensibility. A quote by Paul Ford here in our brochure from The Abolition of Man has something to do with uh, irrigating deserts and cutting down jungles. The contemporary imagination inherits the dark side of romanticism, Baudelaire and de Sade rather than Wordsworth and Emerson. Let's call it the perverse imagination. This exists both in its popular form, in the popular media, and in its establishmentarian form. For instance, in the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, however split these two things are, they have one thing in common, nihilism. Almost like a, a Hieronymus Bosch vision become fact. Modernism seems to this troglodytic mentality anyway to be essentially a polemical attack on the very notions of meaning, hierarchy, structure, order, a universe, and ob objective values. So we come to the present. The present crisis of the imagination could be summarized by two pictures, two images, each worth a thousand words. Madonna or the Madonna? <laughs> But to put it in categories, let's distinguish three crises of the imagination today. The moral, the religious, and the intellectual. First, the moral. I don't really think our moral behavior in this century is notably worse overall than at any time in the past. Though it probably is worse than in the period after the French Revolution and before Woodstock. Or from the Congress of Vienna to the Legion of Decency. I don't think our moral reasoning is 
terribly defective. It's often very sophisticated and philosophical. But certainly our moral imagination has never been in worse condition. Never in history has a whole population lost its moral imagination. Stories, even Bible stories. Who knows them except a couple of Christians? What happened in the decadence of Greece, in the decadence of Imperial Rome, in the decadence of Bourbon, France, was pretty much confined to the aristocracy. One of the little-known effects of democracy is to spread the disease of decadence by leveling down instead of up. See, a class system was like insulated compartments in a ship. Uh, you wouldn't flood the ship, just one compartment, or like fire doors in a building. It made it hard for either good or evil to move from one class to another because it was a relatively immobile and stratified society. Democracy is like an open-air stadium where everyone is immediately aware of and exposed to everything. That's not an argument against democracy. It's just a note about its danger. I think Winston Churchill is absolutely right when he said democracy is the stupidest form of government ever invented in the history of the world, except all the other ones. <laughs> the crisis of the imagination today is religious. I quote from, of all people, Alan Watts, who wrote one wonderful sane book before he lost his mind. It was called Behold the Spirit. And someone who wrote that well, I wonder how he could have possibly gone off the deep end as he did. But uh, he says in Behold the Spirit, a book I highly recommend, it may be said that our moral image of God is more or less good and true, but not particularly beautiful. It is lacking in beauty and beauty's handmaidens, joy, laughter, and playfulness, a virtue which is at the very root of creative art. Of the trinity of virtues, the good, the beautiful, and the true, the beautiful has always been somewhat problematic for Christian thought, since it has felt that so many things are beautiful which are neither true nor good. The restoration of beauty to its proper place in our image of God is one of the most important results of an incarnational mysticism, for beauty is at once the most spiritual and the most material of these three virtues. It is the most spiritual because it is the least serious and the least necessary. It is totally unpragmatic, thoroughly gratuitous. On the other hand, beauty is the most material because it expresses itself in perfection of material form. To Christians infected with Gnosticism and Manichaeism, beauty is suspect precisely because it is associated with matter and especially with woman, the symbol of Mother Earth. But because the Incarnation expresses God's love of the Earth it, and began its historical manifestation in God's love for a woman, this suspicion must be heretical from a truly Christian viewpoint. But the three virtues, goodness, truth, and beauty, are essential to each other's perfection. And a God not seen as fully beautiful is, for that reason, not fully good or fully true. The image of God deficient in sense and feeling is of small appeal to man. This is especially true of educated, sincere, thoughtful, and spiritually hungry pagans. We are repelled by the downright ugliness and joylessness of so much that passes for Christianity. This cannot be changed by mere external adjustments in ecclesiastical art and manners or the mere tone and style of teaching and preaching. It must proceed from an inner experience of the beauty and joy of God. Third, the crisis of imagination today is intellectual. Contemplation is the missing ingredient 
both in all systems of modern philosophy that I am aware of and in the average ordinary life and in modern education. What teacher uh, inspires students with the fascination of three absolutes, the good, the true, and the beautiful? This is why you're in school. Now, education is dullness and babysitting most of the time. The intellectual and the moral crises are very closely related. I believe that the root of the intellectual theory of materialism and empiricism and scientificism and reductionism and so on, Marx, Freud, Darwin, uh, is ultimately a materialistic practice. Nietzsche, the children of darkness are often wiser in their own generation than the children of light, has put his finger on the jugular when he says that to understand any philosopher's metaphysics, look at the morality it aims at. Materialistic practice is that which sought and found its justification in materialistic theory. Our two chief sports are greed and lust. Just consider for a moment what would happen if just to take one of these things, greed. Uh, let's take both of them together. Let's, let's suppose that uh, advertisers could no longer use sex appeal to sell anything. And let's suppose furthermore that the world's oldest profession, which is advertising, remember uh, the devil invented it in the Garden of Eden, here's an apple, eat this, it'll make you God. Uh, <laughs> that from George Rutler, I didn't make that up. Just imagine that we practiced the advice of, let's not go as high as Jesus Christ, let's just, just go as high as Benjamin Franklin or Socrates or uh, uh, Confucius or the Stoics. Want only those things that are appropriate for your nature. Don't want silly luxuries anymore. Stop greed. What would happen? Our entire society would fall apart. Our entire society is based on its political structure, which in turn is based on its economic structure. What politician could possibly appeal to anything other than economics? Our entire economic structure is based on buying and selling uh, freely, that is, through advertisement, which inflames silly, selfish, greedy desires. So if we stop being greedy, our entire civilization would go down the drain. Can't happen too soon for me. <laughs> What's coming, I see a practical syllogism coming over the horizon. Uh, it has two premises, both of which are facts. And here is a conclusion. Fact number one, our present civilization is more dominated than any previous one by images due to the all-pervading, nearly omnipresent reach of the popular media. Fact number two, the philosophy and the morality of the media are wildly out of touch with that of society in general, the society that it supposedly reflects and really propagandizes. More so than any other elite opinion molders have ever been out of touch with or holding opposite values from the rest of society. Uh, don't have time to prove that, you probably know that. Conclusion. The media must be the contemporary Christian intellectual's primary place of apostolate. The spy goes where the enemy is congregating. C.S. Lewis College will be a spy training center. <laughs> Finally, very briefly, the future of the Christian imagination. The future is otherworldly, and it is thisworldly. What is the otherworldly or eschatological future of the Christian imagination? I start with a quotation from, of all people, Baudelaire. 
It is this immortal instinct for the beautiful which makes us consider the earth and its various spectacles as a sketch of, as a correspondence with heaven. It is at once through poetry and across poetry, through and across music, that the soul glimpses the splendors situated beyond the grave, especially when an exquisite poem brings tears to the eyes. These tears are an excess of joy. Uh, Lewis has written so beautifully about that that it would be putting snow on his bell to, to say anything more about it. At the end of Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, he has this fascinating suggestion that the gospel has not abrogated legends, myths, fairy stories, but it has hallowed them, especially the eucatastrophe, the happy ending, because, of course, the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the incarnation, and the incarnation is the eucatastrophe of the creation. The Christian still has to work with mind as well as body to suffer, to hope, and to die, but he now may perceive that all his bents and faculties have a purpose which can be redeemed. So great is the bounty with which he has been treated that he may now perhaps dare to guess that in fantasy he may actually assist in the effoliation and multiple enrichment of creation. All tales may come true. And yet, in the last, redeemed, they may be as like and as unlike the forms that we give them as man, finally redeemed, will be like and unlike the fallen man that we have known. Will Tolkien meet his hobbits in heaven? Why not? There's an old tradition that God created the world through the medium of angels. Maybe we are those angels, and we are still continuing the act of creation. There is also a fascinating passage in Letters to Malcolm, Lewis's last full-length book, uh, in which he speculates about the role of the imagination in heaven. I couldn't find the book. I uh, hope you do read it. But last point. Right now, here, in this world, what are we to do to restore the Christian imagination? The bottom line practical question. The question that you probably came here to try to find some sort of answer to. I will immediately disappoint you by saying that this is a wrong question. The question presupposes a favorite premise of Americans, that every problem can be solved by doing something about it. <laughs> moral problems can, for moral problems are fundamentally matters of the free choice of the will, and deeds done at the command of the will. Rational, calculative problems can be solved by doing something about them, for we can think harder and clearer and better by effort, as you can get A's in school by effort. Technical and technological problems can, of course, be solved by doing something about them. We can always use an appropriate technique to get a, a desired result. But imagination is different. It is not a technique. Nor can we simply will it into existence or into health. It is fundamentally receptive, not active. This is true of all three senses of the imagination. In the sensory imagination, all you do is open your eyes, the light comes in, you don't make the light, and the forms, and the images. Second, the creative imagination. Once you sit back and dream, these creative images come bubbling up inside, from who knows where. Third, the, the contemplative imagination. This is the internal parallel to the sensory imagination. We do not create, we receive what we understand. What then can we do? We can do something. 
We can open ourselves. We can let it in. We can shut up busy, chattering Martha so as to let Mary sit at the Lord's feet. We can stop chattering. We can practice the hardest thing for us moderns, especially us Americans, to practice, namely the holy silence. We can open the eyes. We can open the mind. We can relax. We can stop the squirrel cage from going round and round. We can't jumpstart the imagination, but we can stop the boombox that drowns it out. And we can listen to models, like Lewis. We can apprentice ourselves to them. We can be humble enough uh, to begin by imitation. One of the great lost tools of learning. Humility in education uh, comes across mainly as imitation. I think that C.S. Lewis College will play four crucial and unique and indispensable roles in the renewal of the Christian imagination. Uh, the fourth one is its most unique role. Uh, and this responds to four crises today. First of all, the educational crisis, the loss of content, the loss of the canon, the great books. C.S. Lewis College will be a great book college. Every college should. The only, only alternative is a, a, a non-great books college. <laughs> a cheap books college. <laughs> Second, there is a crisis in Christian education. An identity crisis. What does it mean to be a Christian college? C.S. Lewis will know an answer. The college will know an answer to that question. Others won't. Third, there is a loss of integration between Christianity and education. We will have this integration. And fourth, there are some other institutions which have addressed these three problems. At least in the United States that I'm aware of. Places like St. Thomas Aquinas College and Christendom and Steubenville and so on. But none has a large arts component. The natural place for the flourishing of the imagination. C.S. Lewis College will. After a century which has seen Satan unbounded, let us pray that C.S. Lewis College can contribute mightily to our spiritual warfare by showing the muses unbounded. For the muses are really real, and they are really one, and they are really false names for Christ. This is by far the most interesting part of any talk. Dialogue is always more interesting than monologue. The question is, what cry would be the appropriate response to the NEA wallow of the last year or so? Uh, I would say a loud one and a double one. A loud one because if you don't shout, no one is going to hear you and do anything. If you sit back humbly in your corner and just do your thing, the world will go to hell in a handbasket. Uh, and the cry has to be positive as well as negative, as you've suggested, uh, not just a, a reaction, a protest, but saying, this should be, therefore this shouldn't be. So the, the cry would be bound to be a little hypocritical. We don't really practice what we preach very well. We're not very good at the thing that we're protesting. But uh, that's human life. Uh, we're all hypocrites. Here, I, I, I come here today to tell you something about the imagination. Half of you know more about it than I do. What right do I have to tell you anything about the imagination? Or what right do you have to tell me anything about the imagination? 
So we don't have to be great artists ourselves in order to uh, to be outraged at uh, a travesty of not only uh, Christianity but also art. I think we have to do some shouting and screaming. Peter, and do we have a right to shout though if we've negated the marketplace? Well, in a democracy, everyone has a right to shout. It's a, it's a free economy of ideas. And uh, yes, you, you have a right to shout. And if, uh, uh, if you're a fool, people will see that and not listen to you. But even the fool has rights. Well, I think Campbell has done a, a reasonably good job in popularizing myth and making people aware of it. And that's all to the good. He's a New Age thinker and not at all a Christian, uh, so you would expect a, a theologically skewered angle. But uh, it, it's a mixed bag. I think you can learn some things from him, as you can learn things from, from many pagans. And insofar as he has made people popularly aware that their, their rationalistic, pragmatic mentality is inadequate and that we have to return to some mythic roots, I think he's done some uh, preparation for the gospel against his own intentions. Uh, we, we have all been taught outright lies about the Middle Ages in school. For instance, that they all thought that the universe was small and the earth was flat. Even the most uneducated peasant knew better than that. And that they were the Dark Ages. Well, of course, they were the Christian Age. Back to the sources. Check, check out the textbooks and the secondary sources by reading the primary sources. Check out the books used even at Harvard which say that uh, medieval man lived in, in a very small universe. Check it out with the source, Ptolemy's Almagest, the basic astronomy textbook used throughout the Middle Ages, quoted by Boethius, whom everyone who could read read, it, which says the universe is literally unmeasurable and the entire planet Earth is in relation to the universe like a pinpoint. They had a notable sense of the wonder and the glory and the awe and the majesty and the infinite size of the universe. That's just one example of, of, of many lies told about the Middle Ages. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. We're also often told that uh, uh, the Middle Ages scorned reason and science and uh, 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 the free, untrammeled use of the human mind. They've never heard of scholastic philosophy. They've never heard of the fascinating scientific researches of Bacon and uh, many other scholastics, Albert the Great. Uh, we're just told lies. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. Yes. The Renaissance really began in the 11th century when Alcuin of York self-consciously tried to recreate Athens in Christian Europe by opening universities. Let me, let me quote one fascinating thing. I don't want to answer questions in a long way and cut off other questions, but George Medved, who is not even a Christian, he is a uh, Michael Medved, rather, uh, He's a movie reviewer in America. He's Jewish. He, uh, just look at some, some facts here. Yeah, I can do this in two minutes. In years past, 
Bing Crosby, Pat O'Brien, Spencer Tracy played compassionate priests. Nearly all men of the cloth who appeared on the screen would be kindly and concerned, if not downright heroic. In the last 10 to 15 years, mainstream movie makers have swung to the opposite extreme. If anyone turns up in a film today wearing a Roman collar or bearing the title Reverend, you can be quite sure he will be either crazy or corrupt or probably both. Examples, Monsignor, Agnes of God, The Runner Stumbles, True Confessions, Mass Appeal, The Missions, Past the Ammo, Salvation, Riders of the Storm, In Light of Day, Malone, Crimes of Passion, The Remake of the Blob, Poltergeist 2, of course, The Last Temptation of Christ, King David. The Hollywood moguls insist that movie makers are merely responding to the beliefs and prejudices of the film going public. According to this argument, they are merely following the honorable capitalist practice of giving the people what they want. There is, however, one gigantic flaw in this line of reasoning. All the movies I've just mentioned above, every single one of them flopped resoundingly at the box office. Taken together, these pictures lost hundreds of millions for the people who made them. Hunger for money can explain almost everything in Hollywood, but it can't explain why ambitious producers keep launching expensive projects that slam religion. Their mysterious behavior comes even more difficult to understand when one takes a brief look at the public reception for those exceedingly rare films of recent years that have taken a more sympathetic view of organized faith. Chariots of Fire, Tender Mercies, The Trip to Bountiful, Places in the Heart, Witness, A Cry in the Dark. These six distinguished films stand apart as proud exceptions to the movie industry's pervasive hostility towards religious values and practices. Yet even these sympathetic portrayals fail to show organized faith as relevant in any way to the lives of ordinary urban Americans, for each of the films places religion in some exotic context far removed from the daily lives of most moviegoers. In addition to their remote settings, these six films share one other important point in common. They all won surprisingly large audiences. It is hard to escape the conclusion that there is a perverse idealism at work here. For many of the most powerful people in the entertainment business, hostility to traditional religion goes so deep and burns so intensely that they insist on expressing that hostility even at the risk of commercial disaster. According to a recent poll, I think 9% of people in media attend religious services regularly, something like 50% of the American public do. 97% of opinion molders in the media believe that any woman should have a right to abortion for any reason at any time. Only 28% of the people in America believe that. So there's a vast gap between their philosophy and ours. Christianity has always gone where the action is and where the need is. Never withdraw. It's always attacked. Yeah. Okay, let's join together in thanking Peter Howard.